This time on Archery in Depth, we have the man, the hammer, Tim Gillingham from Gold Tip Arrows. He's going to tell us a little bit about how to tune our arrows for broadheads and field tips. So trying to get them to group closer together and his amazing way of doing it. He's got a YouTube series that shows you exactly how to do it, but you're basically detuning your bow so that each will group a little bit closer to each other. So instead of trying to figure out what broadhead is the right one or what may or may not actually shoot better, we're doing it to the bow. We're making the bow make those broadheads group closer. So amazing conversation with an absolute killer. Tim is amazing at both target archery and hunting. Excited for you guys to hear about it. So here we go. We're going to get Tim on the line and move forward. Here is Tim Gillingham. We're talking to Tim Gillingham of Gold Tip Arrows. He is a world-class professional archer and expert in pretty much everything archery. Exceptionally accomplished hunter as well. Uh, welcome, Tim. How's it going? No, not too bad. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time today. I like to uh, do an intro of new people so that everybody get, can get to know you a little bit better. Three things mm -hmm. to get to know you better. First, what's your favorite drink, adult or otherwise? <laughs> probably Mountain Dew. Okay. All right. From Utah, popular choice in Utah for sure. Next question. Favorite cut of meat? Oh, probably filet mignon. Great choice. Last question to get to know you just a little better. I know you're going to be biased, but favorite bow you've ever shot? Oh, by far and away, my Bowtex. With this, this new cam system and everything is a fucking catchy. It's the best bow I've ever shot in my life. The deadlock system is also something pretty amazing. For well, yeah, the, the, it's just just the whole system. I mean, it's just I can't say enough about it. Yep. Love it. Well, today I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the magical flight of the broadhead and how we can get broadheads to at least group better or or more similar like our field points. Now, broadheads don't immediately hit and group like field points, right? And you have. Um, you have, I think, the best video series about this on Gold Tips YouTube channel. It's an 11-part video series about how to help group it. But what, can you tell us a little bit more about the challenges of grouping broadheads and basically how to help tune us, help tune them? Well, sure. I mean, it's just it's always this sliding scale of of uh, effect, you know. And broadheads don't fly like field points. Period. End of story. They flat don't. They have canard wings. Okay, if you want it in engineering. You know, since they, there's a canard wing on the end of your arrow that if it doesn't fly perfectly straight, will want to plane off, okay? Much like a, you know, a fighter jet and the wing on and on a fighter jet. It's one of the reasons why, you know, if you look at the difference between a fighter jet and a super cub, right? You know, a fighter jet relies on thrust to steer it and a super cub relies on, you know, it just floats around in the air, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it just putters around and the wings kind of, you know, stabilize it and everything. So, but they're two different animals and they run at two different speeds. And if you run a, you know, run broad, faster you run broadheads, the, the more problems you run into for that same reason, you know, because the planing effects just, you know, get exacerbated and get, you know, made worse. So, you know, that's the fundamental reason why mechanical broadheads fly better than, fixed blades and there's no art and there's zero argument behind that you know there you can't argue that you know it's blade surface is blade surface is blade surface 
Tell us a little bit about, you were touching on the difference between expandable or mechanical broadhead and a fixed blade. Inherent sure. differences, right? Well, okay, let me give you some examples of this. So I was talking about the guys at Thorn Broadheads do some lot of testing. And, you know, when they're starting to push the envelope of 400 to 450, 500 feet a second, you start to run into all kinds of problems, even to the, even to the point where, you know, different profiles of the actual tip of the broadhead will not shoot because they have flat planing surfaces on them because the speed just makes it worse. And, you know, their new broadhead has a cone tip on it because that's what actually has the most even airflow around it. So when you're, when you're dealing with broadheads, it's always like trade-offs. Okay. There's always like pros and cons to every single one of them. Okay. And, you know, when I pick broadheads, it's based on number one, I, I, I list my criteria of what I'm trying to accomplish. Right. You know, first thing I want is accuracy. It's the most important thing to make it an ethical kill on an animal. Mm-hmm. You know, first and foremost, I want to cut my noise down because I don't want the animal to jump the string and hear it coming. And so I, that's why I shoot mechanical broadheads. I don't feel like penetration in my entire life has ever been an issue. Sure. With about anything I've ever shot. And, you know, I run a staff of a very large staff of shooters that, you know, most of them hunt and just interact with the public for the last 25, 30 years, you know, and I've seen a lot of stuff and, you know, most of the time when there's a penetration issues, there's a shot placement issue with it. Sure. This episode of Archery in Depth is brought to you by First String. First String is your American-made manufacturer of ultra-premium aftermarket strings and cables for your bow. What sets First String apart is that they have been the innovators since the beginning of the aftermarket industry for strings and cables in archery. They have patented things. They've allowed the archery industry to use some of their knowledge to figure out what makes the best bow string, what stops that peep rotation. When you're looking to make the change to up your game from the stock set of strings and cables, or maybe you got an older set that's fuzzing up and you're ready to make the change to a really nice string and cable, First String is the one for you. Go check them out at firststringusa.com. Let's talk a little bit about your testing because you're pretty famous for doing extensive, extensive testing on things, and I would be Mm -hmm. willing to bet you've done a fair share of testing on a bunch of different broadheads, fixed blades, expandables, mechanicals, and all that. Can you kind of run us through your process of of how you test and, like you said, what you're hoping to achieve? Well, I mean, again, it's just like building an arrow setup for competition. You know, what are the first thing I ask a guy, well, what rules are you trying to compete under? Because guess what? Build a broad is no different. You know, or picking a broadhead for a, you know, for a hunt is no different. Um, we all know it's just a Ford Chevy game. You know, a lot of people just don't want to shoot this broadhead because their buddy shoots it or they got to be different, you know, and so on and so forth. But um, as far as tuning goes, I think unequivocally paper is the number one way to tune a bow. Paper tells no lies. Okay. Now you have to really quantify all of that too. I mean, years ago, you know, Chuck Adams come out with the bare match point, right. To match the length of his broadheads to try to, to get the same dynamic reaction. And, and you might get the same dynamic reaction, but you're not going to get the same drag effect. So that drag effect is going to come into play depending on how far you're going to shoot. And let's just face it, the whole world of archery is kind of, I'm not saying this in a negative way, but it's kind of dumbed down to the 30-yard white tail bow hunter. Sure. You know, what you need to do that 
doesn't even compare to what you need to hunt out west or Nebraska or Alaska or, you know, unless you're just going to get real sneaky and sneak in on stuff super close, which probably going to limit your chances of harvesting, you know, a lot of animals, you know. So, you know, I try to be well-rounded. I try to pick broadheads that are, you know, going to accomplish, you know, what I'm doing. You know, most guys talk about shooting long range back east. I'm like, heck, I can't even see 30 yards. So what's the point? So, you know, their broadhead choices just go through the roof. Um, but paper, paper tells no lies. Okay. So if you have a, a left tear, the broadhead's going to go right of your field point. You got a high tear. It's going to go low. You got a left tear. It's, you know, right, I mean, it's just always going to go opposite of the paper tear. Um, and if you watch my 11 video series, the last one is on broadhead tuning and it kind of covers some of the little anomalies. Like, look, we can make your broadheads fly close to your field points if you want, but they don't fly like your field points. Right. Which means, in a sense, that we're going to take both of them slightly out of tune to make them come together. Mm-hmm. Is is really what that means? You know what I like about, say, my thorn broadheads is, and I shot kill zones before I shot thorns. Um, simply, and, and the funny thing is, the, the main reason I bought that broadhead is because I like their practice point. That's the number one criteria for me: is how am I going to practice? How am I going to ensure when I pull a broadhead out of the quiver, no matter the distance I'm shooting, that I'm not going to get any surprises? Because spending time around broadheads, we've had our fair share of surprises, I guarantee you. <laughs> um, and so when I saw this Thorn broadhead in a magazine, I was like, wow, that looks just like a kills hunt, just better. You know, it allows the blade simply to fold back under the ferrule. You know, they got a, prast- a clip on the, on the broadhead. So now I can take that broadhead and I can shoot the exact broadhead that i'm going to be hunting with through paper and it's got a setup where it doesn't doesn't open and i i I don't get any surprises ever you know even when i shouldn't kill zones i mean it took me about a day to figure out that even though that practice blade looks very similar to the actual broadhead once i got out past about 50 yards it created different drag okay it created less drag than the actual broadhead Mm. so at a hundred yards, I'm looking at, you know, probably two or three yards difference on a sight tape, you know, 20 to hundred. This episode of Archery in Depth is brought to you by First String. First String is your American made manufacturer of ultra premium aftermarket strings and cables for your bow. What sets First String apart is that they have been the innovators since the beginning of the aftermarket industry for strings and cables in archery. They have patented things. They've allowed the archery industry to use some of their knowledge to figure out what makes the best bow string, what stops that peep rotation. When you're looking to make the change to up your game from the stock set of strings and cables, or maybe you got an older set that's fuzzing up and you're ready to make the change to a really nice string and cable. First string is the one for you. Go check them out at firststringusa.com. And, uh, you know, I've shot just a plethora of broadheads. I did find one one time that did fly like, like a field point, really, and that was a Bloodsport Night Fury. It's a short broadhead. There's something about forward-facing mechanicals that – you know, I guess you could probably talk to an aeronautical engineer and they could probably tell you, but I find that they, they, they seem to be a little bit more efficient in the air. Like they don't create as much drag. Sure. Um, fixed blades. I guess the, the, the main thing about fixed blades, you know, one of the reasons I like mechanicals is because it, I can shoot less vein, less vein equals less noise. I firmly believe that the animals are jumping the sound 
coming out of it. I had this conversation with a guy named Steve Cobreen. And if and you guys don't know who Steve Cobreen is, you should. But Steve Cobreen's probably harvested more animals with a bow than anybody I know. How do you spell his last name? And Steve is probably has more SCI world records than any other bow hunter, probably including Archie Nesbitt. And he's a big, tall guy like me, but we had these conversations all the time on the phone and he kept ordering these real small veins. And I'm like, what are you shooting those for? Is that enough? He said, well, I did a test. And this is just a test that probably we can't do because we just don't have the game rich environment that he did. So, you know, he, he would test it on Impala. He said, I put a target behind the blind and I put, and I, I, I filmed the animal's reaction shooting at the target and I filmed the animal's action shooting at him. He said, it's not even in, in the same zip code. Hmm. They said, it's unbelievable the difference. He said, they jumped the sound of the arrow coming at them. And, you know, we'll do stuff like that with, with my buddies. We'll, you know, have to shoot an arrow bias to see if we can actually, how quick we can pick it up, you know, and that animal's just way more acute than we are too. So, and fixed blades, when you go to fixed blades, it just requires more fletching to control them. More fletching equals more noise. I mean, I found that, uh, you know, the number one thing to control a fixed blade broadhead is four fletch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just knocks it in the dirt. And it was so, it was so compelling to me that I, from that point forward, I, I've switched all my setups to four fletch, my indoor, my outdoor, my target archery, everything I shoot is four fletch now because of how remarkable the difference between a four inch hard helical three fletch was and a two and a half inch four fletch pattern on an arrow in terms of how it controlled the broadhead. And so, you know, that's kind of the trade-off you run into. Now you can, you know, do some of the crazy stuff like ranch fairies doing, or, you know, that's a little, again, everything goes back to the number one, number two, number three, number four, number five criteria. First is accuracy. So what's going to contribute to accuracy? Well, speed's going to help because number one problem I have as a bow hunter still with a razor rangefinder is how far is it from here to there? It's the number one problem in bow hunting. Yep. So that's my number one solution is to make sure I keep my speeds up. Fixed blades, I don't like to go below 280. Um, I like to stay somewhere between 280 to 295. Mechanical broadheads, I'll pump them up to as fast as I can run them pretty much with a decent. I, I've actually kind of backed off and you know, to around 305 and then put a little bit more weight in the front. They just seem to shoot better at distance and in the wind. So, but I like that speed. I mean, it's for the same reason I like it in unmarked 3D tournaments. It helps me when I make a mistake. I range the animal, he moves, I move. We're, we're kind of, you know, playing this little back and forth game. And a lot of times, you know, when you're trying to range an animal in the field, I mean, you're nervous too. You're shaking a little bit. You don't know if you're actually ranging the, the animal, the bush beside him, up and over. I mean, it's, sorry, it's not the same as the backyard. Mm. So, you know, there's just lots of, you know, equations there, you know. Number one is, 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 is uh, you know, how far is the animal? That's my number one problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and I solve that mostly by speed and tuning and picking the right broadhead, you know, for, for accuracy's sake. You know, penetration-wise, I mean, if I look at all the animals I've shot over 90 yards, and it's a pile of them, I almost always get full, complete penetration. 
And I think the reason is, is your aero flight is so perfect at that distance that all the energy is transferred dead down the center of the arrow to the back of that broadhead. There's no flipping and flopping around. You know, when you get a glance on a rib or a glance on a bone or, or a tree branch or, or you make a bad shot and the arrows walk, you know, wagging down range, you've lost a lot of your penetration ability right there. You know, even my setups with the, you know, I pulled 73, 74 pounds. You know, I hit an elk in the rib last year. I hit the rib just right. I mean, and I don't, but I don't need your reaction. It just happens. It's bow hunting, right? I could shoot that same elk 20 more times and it'd probably blow right through it. Sure. But I hit that rib just right to where it kind of skidded and it must have just whipped the arrow real hard. And, you know, I got all the way through one lung and into the next. And uh, it, it was, it should have went my mind all the way through but uh but I, again i don't i don't like judge that off of one situation i'm not going to need jerk and go change my broadhead or my arrow or this or that because you know i i had that one thing happen to me so let's let's back up a second tim let's go into more detail about what we started talking about test heads and field points yeah so so broad yeah so I want to know if you're not everyone you know. If, go, ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. So if you want to know if you, how close your broadheads fly, like your field points, go detune your bow and put a left hair in it, put a quarter inch left hair in it, go out to 80 yards or as far as you feel comfortable shooting and shoot your, shoot your broadhead. That'll tell you how close your broadheads and your field points fly to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you much prefer shooting, at least when you're practicing or trying to get your broadheads grouped in you much prefer a test head to a field point right because you're you're basically wanting to keep a broadhead the whole time yeah i try to match the length of the head exactly to the broadhead you know when i'm doing when when, when i didn't have this thorn system what i would do is i would get the bare match points and i try to find one as close to the length of the broadhead i was shooting and i would do my paper tuning and my individual tuning of the arrows with that so i was just getting as close as i could get in that scenario too, though, I would also opt for a slightly bigger vein than maybe I would now just because of the tune, mm-hmm. you know, the ability for me to super tune my setups like I can now with this system. So, you know, another thing that needs to be brought up, you know, when you're, when you're making a shot on an animal, it's a moment of truth. How many of you think could, you guys think you could pick the bow up and shoot a perfect hole through paper on a perfectly paper tuned bow? Right. You know, most of the time we're shaking. Not, a lot of times we're shaking and, you know, we're not Jim Burnworth. We haven't shot a, you know, 500 animals with a bow. And it's just another day at the office, you know. <laughs> For sure. The, so the nerves I, I know will I, hurt. I, I know I still get jangled. And, you know, my tournament preparation, you know, has really helped me make those shots when I'm really jangled. You know, it's just taught me like, hey, you got to pull hard. Because even if you're shaking, it'll hit where the pin is as long as you didn't collapse. Yep. So so getting back to tuning it, one of the mm-hmm. things I found very interesting in your in your video series is, you know, we have a paper tear that we can help tune the arrow to, but you also treat where the arrow is impacting on the target like a paper tear. Like if you're if you're practice tips yeah. are hitting one point and your broadheads are hitting a different point, you're now able to tune them sort of like a paper tear. Yeah. Can you walk I us guess, through that? 
Sure. The best way to illustrate that is to talk about bare shaft tuning. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in my, in my series, I, I, what, one of the goals of that series was to correlate paper tuning, bare shaft tuning and broadhead tuning into the same tune chart. So people understand that they're basically one in the same. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you have a left hair, you're going to get a right broadhead. If you have a left hair, you're going to get a right bare shaft. Okay. Um, now it is possible to have a bullet hole with a with a you know with a field point and a broadhead say that is impacting to the right. And that could be just the difference in the length of those two broadheads. Because if you change your arrow length to half an inch, what do you think is going to happen? If you've got, especially if you're pushing the spine, you're going to change the dynamic reaction. And some, so much of that depends on how good the knock travel on the particular bow you're shooting is. If you have a bow with a lot of pervasive knock travel where it only tunes with one knock point height, like just, and it's real sensitive to that, it's going to be sensitive to everything else that happens with it also. Um, so, Basically, like, again, what we're doing is if you want your broad edge to fall like your field points in that situation, you might have to put a little bit of a right tear in your field point arrow so that the broadhead steers back in line, okay, and make the two hit with each other. That's how you make a broadhead fall like a field point. Yeah, you're basically, you're detuning the tune of your bow to get the two to group closer, sure. right? Now, just yeah, for... Yeah, so if my, broadhead, if my broadheads are... If say my field points are hitting left of my broadheads, right, and I want my broadheads to steer more to the left to, to mimic them, I will put a right tear in it. Now, for those that maybe aren't as familiar with how to tune a bow with paper or exactly what it's saying, can we walk through a little bit of sort of some basic paper tuning things and what it means in a bear shaft and all that? So if the average guy's like, now, I don't even know what a right knock tear is. Well, a right tear is the point goes in and then the fletching end up to the right mm-hmm. of the point when it goes through paper and we're always, when we're talking about the type of tear, it's always the rear well, the that's knock, why, knock, you know, the front point, right? That's why, that's why I think it's important to, to, you know, to, to, to do the videos so that you can talk about it here and then guys can go look at it. It's all illustrated. So people can understand what the right tear looks like, what the up tear, down tear, left tear all look like. Yeah. You know, and you should do your paper training at five yards. Okay. If you do it up close and you look, think you got a bullet hole at two feet, you might still have a tear in it. If you back up to five yards, it may be a half-inch tear. Well, a half-inch tear is going to push a, a big fixed-blade broadhead 10 inches to the right at 50 yards. Mm-hmm. Okay? So five yards is about the point where the tear will always be at its worst. Okay? And that's where you want to do your actual tuning from. And one of the tips that I'll give you is before you start paper tuning, because I get guys coming over all the time and they just – I got to teach them how to shoot through paper because they'll just randomly shoot through paper and they'll hit the same hole. So the first thing I do is I, I shoot at, I shoot at a target or a, something on the target. And I try to make my arrow impact two inches underneath of where I'm holding or an inch and a half underneath where I'm holding. What that does is allows me to shoot at the arrow hole above and hit right below it and use, use up the whole paper without interlocking tears and, you know, just makes your life a lot easier. So, sure. Always good but, advice. But, and paper tells you everything. If I, I get a guy all the time, you know, I get guys all the time that I'm starting to, to help. And and it's always the biggest, burliest guy that's usually got most of the problem because they can't relax their hand in the, in the bow. If a guy cannot shoot one arrow twice the same through paper, 
you really can't start paper training until you can accomplish that. And paper is a very valuable tool. If I got a guy that's really struggling with that, I'll make him stand in front of paper and shoot. Mm-hmm. He'll start to figure out, just like we figure out indoors, when we stand there and shoot arrow after arrow at 20 yards indoors, we start to realize, hey, when I do this, I get that. Well, same thing happens through paper, except it's a lot closer. You don't have to walk as far. And, and, the, and it's there's a lot less shooter, you know, there's, there's just a lot less things to think about there. And the tuning procedure would be the same with an expandable versus a fixed blade. It might just be harder with a yeah, fixed blade. Absolutely, yeah, there's absolutely no difference. It's just that if you had a quarter-inch left tear, the mechanical might only steer off two or three inches where the or, – or not at all. It depends on how much blade surface that mechanical had. And the, the fixed blade would steer quite a bit further off based on its blade surface area. Is it a three-blade broadhead? Or is it a four-blade broadhead? Now, it stands to reason if four fletchings correct the back of the arrow better, four broadheads are going to steer the front a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. And just to kind of going back to what we talked about with the Bowtex and even the Elites now, a lot of the bows, if we're going to be making these adjustments, will need to be put in a bow press, not necessarily Bowtex, though. Um, can you talk a little it, it bit just, about what yeah. we're doing for it? You know, Tell everybody well, that it, may not know how to do it. Sure. Well, tuning is, think of tuning as alignment. Okay. If I get that guy that I can't get to shoot a bullet hole and I can shoot a bullet hole as though and everybody else can shoot a bullet hole and he draws the thing back and I can just get up behind him and I can see his knock point. His knock is sitting left of his point. I can tell you before he pulls the trigger, I can tell you he's going to shoot a left hair. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause tuning is alignment. Okay. It's alignment of the power stroke of the string to the center line of the arrow. Okay. There's no perfect 13 16 measurement. There's no perfect vertical knock point or got to go through the burger hole or, or so on and so forth. Okay. I've got bows. I shoot where I move the rest way to the left. And then I just move the cam system over with it. I've got bows that most of my bow techs, I shoot with the bottom of the arrow at the top of the burger button hole. I do that because it aims better like that. Mm-hmm. So just keep in mind that tuning is alignment. Okay. When we draw a bow back, the cable guard loads up. Well, that creates a left or right force in the bow. Based on how we're, where, how and where we put our grip pressure, we can make that worse or we can make it better, okay? You could take a bow that's pervasively left hair, and if you're a guy that puts a lot of left pressure on the bow, it makes you a bull hole for you. You know, bow manufacturers are really good at blaming the shooter and, and the arrow companies for their tuning problems. Okay. Right, right. The beauty of a system like, you know, you said the elite set system or the Botech, you know, uh, system that they have is they make a wide tunability to the actual shooter. Okay. And that's important because if you get a bow that really has a very narrow tuning window, you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to have a lot of grief. You know, you're just, it's just going to be, and that's how I learned all that stuff. Right. That's how I learned all the stuff that's in those charts is ripping my hair out, you know, trying to figure out why I had a left hair or why I had a right hair, you know, or so on and so forth, you know. And basically, you could, whether it's the Botex system or or the Top Hat system or whatever, you're physically manipulating and moving those cams one side or the other, correct? Yeah, and, and sometimes it's not worth knowing why, okay? Just do it. <laughs> there's, four, there's four freaking things that correct the left hair, and there's four things that correct the right hair, okay? Right. And if you want to go further, yeah, we can bend risers and do kinds of crazy stuff like that if you have to, but you shouldn't have to be doing that. Right. And and I'm convinced that if if shooters really knew and hunters really knew all the problems that they were going to have with a particular bow, they would buy their bows based on those tunability features. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. 
uh, you know, it takes about one or two bows that drive you crazy to, you know, to really kind of cement that in your, in your psyche, especially if you're spending your hard earned money. The problem is you got a lot of sponsored shooters out here that, you know, are trying to make bow brands look good. And, you know, people get the perception that, Hey, I spend a thousand or $1,400 on a bow. This thing's like a race car and I don't have to do nothing to it. Right. Yeah. And it's and fair to that say that is not, that is not always the truth. When you get a brand new bow from a bow shop, you know, opinions vary and quality varies of what you get, or if you even just get one out of the box from the manufacturer, there still needs to be a good amount of work done to make it fit you and how you shoot. Right. And this is what we're talking no doubt. about. And, yeah. and there's, and, it, and it's so like hard to, to, to teach people the intricacies of what a top professional archer goes through in their setup to take, take a good bow and make it great. Okay. I'm, I'm over here at the Arizona cup and I'm out here shooting in the wind and I'm just playing with my stabilizer weights, just trying to get that yin and the yang matched up to where I can perform at my very best, you know, and it's just, it's just really tiny little subtle things sometimes. And I apply that same logic and the stuff I learn out here to my hunting bows, and, you know, hunting bows are just, you know, they should be treated the same. I want my hunting bow to shoot Zachers like my target bow, but understanding i'm not trying to hit dimes i'm trying to hit a eight inch circle but i want to be able to hit that eight inch circle every time out to 120 yards Mm -hmm. so in the the psyche of when you you know when you when you're good enough to shoot 120 yards and kill every time when you see 60 yards in your rangefinder your mind just is like you're dead it doesn't even like it doesn't even like cross your mind and some of the, you know, some of the, uh, the problems people have is they just want it too bad and they get all jazzed up and they, they can't make the shot because it's outside their comfort zone or it's, it's too far, or, you know? And, and if you're confident about it, I just remember this one time I chased this big mule deer around all day. I pop over the ridge and I get a range at 82. And when that range finder said 82, it never even crossed my mind I could miss. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I dead centered him. You know, it's just, that's what the preparation, you know, breeds. Yeah. When you're practicing and, at a hundred plus 50 yards is a layup. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do almost all my practicing at distance. I mean, I check my bows. I build my hunting setup for hunting conditions. You know, I run my pins 40 to a hundred and I run a movable, so if I got time to move it, I will. But if I don't, I want to be able to move quick because hunting scenarios I shoot and I hunt in a lot, Nebraska and things like that, elk hunting, Utah. I mean, it's things happen fast. Mm-hmm. And if you're not ready, you'll miss. I, I hunt with my, you know, I got a buddy I hunt with over in Nebraska, and he always still drives me crazy because he's so slow. And he's like, he's, I'm slower than you are. I'm like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I think about stuff, you know, the things that you can, I can do to speed him up, like, you know, a faster hookup on a release or, a, you know, or a just, just whatever. I mean, something, you know, heavier holding weights that settle down faster. You know, those kinds of things will help you at the moment of truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Archery in Depth is brought to you by X-Focus 365 lenses. 
These are amazing lenses that'll help clear up your sight picture. In particular, check out the AD lens, the doublet lens. These are two different lenses that are fused together in perfect symmetry to create the appearance of one single lens, but there's actually two in there. The purpose of that is to bring in two different focal planes together into one. It makes the best sight picture you could ask for, and it is literally the best lens money can buy on the market right now. Go check it out, xfocus365.com or Lancaster or arcusworks.com. Check them out. What's your opinion on the yeah. effect of things that we're adding to the arrow, like knocks and collars and inserts? Well, the one thing I caution people, and I hear this a lot online, I mean, it's just, you know, guys are like, well, if I shoot lighted knocks, you know, now, if you shoot lighted knocks, you should shoot them 100% of the time. Knocks one of the most important parts of the arrow, okay? It's it's the release of the arrow, and, and all these knocks are different, and I'm very much a knock snob. I mean, I've helped design the majority of the knocks in our gold tip line, and they're designed for a reason, and the way they're designed are, is important, and they lead to accurate shooting, and you can't just take that for granted, you know? A lot of people think if you put weight on the back of the arrow it actually stiffens the arrow that's not true it might change the reaction to what some manufacturer says is stiff or weak but it doesn't really stiffen the arrow because my definition of stiffening the arrow is it makes the arrows react more consistent to each other because the, the, the opposite of that is when an arrow is too weak the way it manifests itself and the reason it won't shoot broadheads with the crap is the fact that the arrows will not react consistent to each other. And you will find that if you make paper tuning part of your regimen. I mean, I shoot 5,000 arrows a year through paper. Mm -hmm. I go home from this tournament. I mean, before I came to this tournament, my first step before I even shot a target was to shoot all 20 arrows I have through paper on all four vein rotations. Okay. Trying to make every one of them do exactly the same thing. Okay. And when I get home, I'm going to tournament next weekend and get my outdoor setup ready. I got 33rd, 31, 32 arrows. I got to do the same exact thing on. Okay. Everything you do to them arrows or everything you do to your bow will change the dynamic spine reaction of some of those arrows, especially if you're pushing them really hard, like I do. You know, I'm minor, minor are being pushed pretty hard on spine because of my drawings. Mm -hmm. You know, I see guys make comments online and you know, they're long draw lengths like mine. I'm like, man, I don't think you can do that. I, I shoot an overdraw because I need to stiffen my arrows up because I've learned that long arrows is just almost impossible for me to get every one of them to do the same thing. And so if you add weight to the front of the arrow, you create resistance. Okay. You, you create resistance and you force that arrow to bend more before it gets moving. Sure. That has a, a big despining effect on the arrow. Okay. In order to make an arrow stiffer, you'd really have to put something in the middle of the shaft. I mean, if you put a longer point in, yeah, it is a little bit of stiffening effect just because you're making, you know, moving the flex point back a little bit maybe, but uh, doesn't have a really big effect on stiffening the overall, you know, arrows so that they react more consistent to each other. Um, one thing, that I always argue is, you know, with the heavy arrow guys is this, well, I think a 300 grain arrow and I add 20 grains to it. I'm going to lose about 
eight or nine foot a second, about 2.75 to three grains is one foot a second. Mm -hmm. If I do that same thing with a 515 grain arrow, I would only pick up or I would lose about, think about this for a second. If I'm trying to gain speed by shaving arrow weight, the heavier I go with the arrow, the more grains I have to go to gain blood per second. I'm going to have to go five grains for one foot a second at 500 grains. Right. So it takes more energy to get that mass into motion. Okay. And it, the more it takes to get that mass, the more time it takes to get that mass in motion, the more the arrow is actually flexing coming out of the bow before it gets moving. Okay. That makes sense. Oh yeah. Perfectly. I was actually going to ask you a little bit more about how, you know, if guys don't understand exactly the correlation of how the knock interfaces with the serving, what's sort of the test that you decide is a good fit? Okay. Lots of people are too well, tight, too loose, all that. Sure, sure. So I think one of the most important things is, is, is how you tie your loop. Um, I believe in tying the loop um, and, and just tying a knock set inside of the loop. Oh, I, I normally go about three sixteenths of an inch below the knock only and that creates down pressure it's the top knot inside your loop that actually will cause you know torquing and lifting on the uh on the arrow if you if you don't get it right so too tight a knocks are absolutely one of the biggest accuracy killers that you can get you can almost go sloppy loose where they fall off the string and it almost doesn't matter but uh when you get too tight you're just basically dragging the string along with the arrow and they, they basically don't come off the string exactly in the same place every time. So if the knock travels, you know, slightly different then this, that knock coming off at different points every time. Okay. So the rule of thumb is this, you should be able to draw your string back no more than an inch, let go. And I tend to go a little tiny bit tighter on my hunting arrows. Two reasons. The arrows are heavier. I mean, I run around a 450 grain arrow. And I just don't want it falling off if I bump it. You know what I mean? Sure. So you're wanting your so, knocks to fit tighter on your hunting arrows? Just slightly. Mm -hmm. Okay. But again, my, my target bows, I may draw the string back a half an inch and want them to come off. My hunting bows, I may give it an inch. I'll draw the string back an inch, let, let the string go, and it should cleanly come off the string. That should be your main rule of thumb. And just for those who don't know, so a knock set yeah. isn't the D-loop. It's it's a set of twists or, or some serving inside the D-loop, right? Yeah, I mean, there's people that put a, a crimp on knock set. I wouldn't do that because a crimp on knock set will will cost you about two or three foot a second. It creates more oscillation because of its weight in the center of your string. The last place you want weight is in the center of your bowstring. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's why you don't want those stupid metal loops. Because <laughs> they'll... Right. If I shot a metal loop on my bow, it hit my overdraw every time. Sure. <laughs> yep. Uh, a basic D loop is is good enough. But you set one knock set on the lower side, right? Yeah, one knock set about the about the about the width of a brass knock set, or maybe slightly more. If you're getting lifting on the front of the arrow when you're drawing, it's because you don't have enough down pressure, or you have some pinch in your knock. Mm -hmm. But I do not leave any gap in my knock from that the top knot to the tie-in knock set. I don't leave any gap because if it's loose, like as loose as I want it to snap on, when I touch the bow off, and it, if you have any vertical knock travel, it could be rattling up and down there. I've seen in a shooting machine where it would actually string arrows vertically doing that. So I've just, I'm, I, I shy away from that. And there's really, and part of the, 
I was going to just say there's two ways to adjust that, right? It's either change knocks or change your serving. Right. And don't call companies up, tell them to change their knock to fit your serving. Knock <laughs> moles are $25,000 and a piece of serving costs a dollar. So right. you got to learn how to serve your strings or have your, 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 uh, you know, I don't, this is a crazy thing. I, I own mad goat custom bowstrings with, uh, Justin Ertl. And, you know, it, it's difficult because you can get three different spools of material in say in 452 X and build up a 22 strand string and the same, you know, you can get slight differences in it just based on the wax content or the dye content in that particular string material. And that's definitely true. If you, if you change colors, it's one of the reasons you see a lot of professional shooters shooting one color strings. I mean, including myself, number one, it makes a better string because you don't have these different colors that have different tendencies trying to fight each other. And yeah, they look cool, but you know, you can make a string look cool with one color too, but you know, I, it builds a better string to do that. So in order to get knock fit perfect, sometimes I, I just have a bunch of different servings and I just, I wrap it on there and snap the knock on I want to use and, and then I make the adjustments. Sometimes I even go as far as laying, you know, a piece of bowstring material in there under my serving. And that a piece of bowstring material will bump your, your serving size about one thousandths. Mm-hmm. And people might think I'm getting a little bit overboard, but I tell you what, man, I'm very particular on knock fit. Yeah. And just for your average bow hunter that maybe isn't as familiar as you, they make different widths of serving so that we can customize our fit like you're talking about right yeah yeah so you can buy serving material in 11 thousands 14 thousands 17 18 19 21 thousands 23 24 thousands and some of that material too i mean just how you apply it if you stretch it as you put it on it's going to change diameter just because it says 23 doesn't mean it's going to have the same finished diameter so so your your end diameter of your serving is what you're looking at for the knock. Now, if you tell me, hey, I want to shoot gold tip knocks, I'll tell you to shoot a 110 center serving and you'll cover every gold tip knock we have. Right, right. But then you got to get that exact 110 somehow. And just so, so the listeners can visualize your test. And so what you're talking about is you you knock your arrow onto your string and then you're holding presumably your D-loop and you're pulling that back from brace height no more than one inch and then you're letting it go, right? Yeah, that's that's knock. The, you know what the knock fit I'm looking about. Yeah, just that brace, just snap a knock on. You know, you can kind of hold it between your two fingers, but just draw it back an inch and let go, and it should just cleanly come off the string. If it just hangs on, this is especially true with girls' buzz mm-hmm. and light poundage buzz. You know, if you have too tight a knock, you'll see it just go ring and like that's a horrible for accuracy. Girls, you really got to be careful that they don't have too too. You know, and light arrows. You know, you don't want too light of a knock fit or too tight of a knock fit with light arrows. Mm-hmm. See, a heavy arrow is going to have some inertia to kind of pull it off the string more consistently. So you can kind of get away with a slightly tighter knock fit with, you know, heavier arrows. Right. And so for the the user, they do your test, It they, they let it go, and then the, the arrow doesn't come off the string for only one inch. Too tight, right? Yeah, you're, you're a little bit too tight, and you might want to consider, you know, having your bow shop reserve it. And the more you know what you want, the more the bow shop, you can hold the bow shop accountable to give you what you want. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there's some things in life, you know, there's a certain level of accuracy. I always tell people this, there's a certain level of accuracy you can buy. And then there's the next level of accuracy that you have to uh, earn. <laughs> right. 
And you have to learn. It's not that hard to do. It's not hard to learn how to serve a bowstring. It's not hard to learn how to do this kind of stuff. Sure. And it's, and it's not overly expensive. I mean. Now, I know you have some good opinions when it comes to broadheads specifically for the FOC people. And we talked a little bit about overall arrow weight. But what, what are your thoughts about putting that arrow weight into the front of your arrow, whether that be inserts well, or whatever? Okay. Let's cover, first of all, what, what, how does an arrow recover? Okay. So when I make a mistake, 90% of mistakes as an archer are made in a left and right manner, okay? And that's caused because of the cable guard, okay? When, when you draw the bow back, the load goes from the string to the cable. So that kind of pulls the bow system for a right-hander to the left. It creates this kind of twisting motion in the riser, okay? That's why you see companies like Bowtech put a flex guard in there, trying to get rid of some of that load, okay? And so that creates a riser that doesn't, have as much left to right twist. So you avoid some of these issues and make a bow a little bit more forgiving to shoot. Um, so when you do make a mistake, say you, you start to creep a little bit or you collapse, it usually translates into the, the, the power stroke of the string alignment and the arrow being struck off center left to right. So it pushes the arrow left to right. Well, the fletching is your first line of defense. Your fletching it's kind of like a parachute on the back of the arrow that straightens that arrow back out, gets it back in line. Because if the back of the arrow is in line with the front, the front can't take off. Okay. Now, if, you know, it's bad enough or say you touch the arrow off and the wind hits the arrow, now you don't have any control over it, right? The wind, the veins are back there trying, but the wind's still stuffing them over there. So now think of point weight as resistance, right? It's resistance to planing. Okay, so when that arrow does get sideways or the broadhead's trying to steer it around, that point weight creates resistance. And I do believe that, you know, especially with fixed blade broadheads and even my hunt, my mechanicals, even this, I'm running 175 grain points in my arrows for the Arizona Cup this weekend because I, I run really small veins on the back of them. And so I'm shooting them arrows closer to like a bear shaft configuration. And I just found that they're just way more forgiving and way better in, in the wind with that kind of point weight. Sure. Now, that being said, right back to the other equation, there is a threshold where too much starts to cause issues. I'm still shooting 271 foot a second with 175 grain points, okay? I wouldn't want to shoot any slower, okay? So the point weight, it's one of the reasons we created this fact weight system with gold tip is that one size never fits all, right? Whether it's a target point or an insert, people want to try different things. You know, I like to put a little point weight in behind my broad head. You know, I took some black label quantum gold tips last year and put, uh, trying to make the quantum, which is a slightly bigger diameter, shoot as good as my pierces with this thorn. Um, Cause I shoot a glue in model broadhead on that, the pierce arrow, which is just phenomenal. But larger arrows actually, are more forgiving and it's because you create a larger power a larger target for the power stroke of the string sure and so i'm trying to get the same wind performance out of this this arrow that's slightly bigger than ever so i just added 20 more grains behind the, the front so now i got a hunting arrow with 165 grains of total front weight and i mean at 140 yards they absolutely wad they shoot as good as i can aim the bow really that that becomes the issue at distance it's like you know with a, with a pin and no magnification, I mean, the target looks tiny. So I try to adjust my target size so that I can aim effectively at distance. So to test this stuff. So 
but yeah, point weight is is it creates resistance. Okay, keep it, it puts resistance on the front of that arrow. Yeah, I can shoot a fifty grain point on an arrow at three hundred forty foot a second. I want ideal world with that setup. That being said, I wouldn't try to shoot a fifty grain broadhead with blades because there's nothing up there to resist planing, and it is absolutely gonna, you know, it's gonna take off on you. You know, if I shoot a 50 grain point with a bare shaft, as long as everything's perfect, I can actually tune that to shoot in the X ring at 20 yards. If you tried to shoot that thing past 40 yards, it'd do an elbow. Sure. Because there's no resistance up front to the little mistakes or getting bumped around in the wind, you know, that's happening to the front of that arrow. So as soon as that point got sideways, it's going to create a planing surface that's going to take off. Okay. And point weight creates resistance to planing. Think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Kind of diving through the air so that you're not getting as much planing effect. Say that again. Sure. Sort of cutting through the air and avoiding more planing effect with, with more weight. Well, it's just, it's like skinny arrows shoot better than fat arrows in the wind be simply because the surface area is smaller. Mm-hmm. So if they get sideways in the wind, there's less surface area to the wind to affect them. Sure. And broadheads are the same. And, and point weight is just kind of this sliding scale of, of difference, you know. At, at some point, yeah, the ranch ferry's idea might work if you don't know a damn thing about tuning. Right. Which is kind of self-avowed to that. Yeah, if you get enough point weight up front, it doesn't matter really what you do behind it. It's Everything's going to follow it. I mean, that's just logic. Yeah. And we all know that you're a very big fan of stiff arrows. How do you how do you well, sort I'm, of attack a heavier? Let's say somebody's going to run a heavier broadhead, like 150, 200 grain broadhead. Do they need to make sure they're 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 working in the spine of their arrow with that? Well, here, here's what I'd say. Again, it goes down to the target, right? If I use a skinny arrow, I have a very small target for the power stroke on my string. As I go up in diameter, that target becomes way way more forgiving. Some of the guys that have worked for us for years that are very good shooters like Kevin Wilkie, they still hunt with 246 ID shafts, so a 516 diameter arrow, because it's so much easier to tune and shoot mm-hmm. for that reason. Okay. So, um, oh, I got sidetracked. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I was a just lot. talking about, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, gimmicks okay, these days, spine. but spine. Yeah. Spine as it relates so, to a heavy broadhead. Sure. So, I think about the only situation where you want to start being concerned about being too stiff is with micro diameter arrows. Okay. But it it really, honestly, I think has more to do with micro diameter arrows with tiny fletchings. Because if you put a two and a half inch four fletch on a micro diameter arrow, you can shoot it as stiff as you want. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. I shot a world record at the Arizona cup last year to give you some, 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 with a 250 spined arrow with a 140 green point out of a 60 pound bow. Conversely, at the Nationals, I shot a 340 spine arrow with 175 grains out of the same exact bow and shot two world records. I think that the, the I do think that the 340s with one or with 175 actually shot more forgiving. They're going to be better in a win, number one, but also number two. In my testing, the only thing that makes a bear shaft shoot more consistent at distance is point weight. 
So when we run little bitty fletchings, like we're running out here for Fida to try to keep our wind drift down, you're making that arrow so much closer to a bare shaft. If I build it for hunting where I got a steer brought in and I put a much bigger uh, vein on it, it's going to make the arrow way more forgiving. I might not even, I honestly don't think I'd actually be able to see the difference. Sure. Okay. And so, and that and finger shooters, if I tune a recurve bow, it's very obvious that I need to pay attention to spine. Okay. If I put a big feather, like say I put a four inch, three, four fletch feather on a, a stiff arrow, it's still going to correct the shoot well. But because your fingers are creating so much knock travel and so much disruption of the back of that arrow, you have to kind of tune the nodes of the arrow to kind of stay in line with each other, you know, so it can accommodate all that, that, you know, that disturbance in there. Yeah. But I don't think, I honestly don't think you can be too stiff. No. Well, I want everybody that's listening to go to the YouTube channel for gold tip and look at your series because it really is. I think the only thing out there that adequately explains how to do this and you, you know, Without visuals, it's hard to do, but you have all the visuals that show how to do this detuning process to get these things closer together. And gosh, after I did it and then paid attention to what you're teaching, it's it's life-changing. It's completely different. It's amazing. Well, it's just, it's the school of hard knocks, okay? That's how I learned everything. You know, it's one of the reasons we see so many young shooters coming up so fast is they don't have to learn all this stuff. It's all handed to them. It's just all there. It's not that hard. The equipment's better. The you know, the, the equipment has morphed with, with the, you know, the information that we pass on to the manufacturers and, you know, everything, you know, everything technology wise gets better over time. Yeah. And I, I just simply refuse to shoot fixed blade broadheads because I, I feel like if I shot a recurve, I tell you, I'd probably shoot a fixed blade broadhead, but um, I don't see the benefit of it. Okay. I've seen the wound channels that a rear deploy mechanical makes, and I just don't see any point of shooting a small hole through something. If I shoot an elk right at dusk, which happens a lot, happened to me last year. <laughs> and man, I sometimes the blood trails, especially if you're above them at all with a big chest cavity animal like that, you may not find blood for quite a ways. And I got on the blood right away at an elk I shot last year, and there was enough entry hole blood that I was able to pick a blood trail up almost instantly. And I get off to the edge of the drop off and he went over that thing so fast chasing a cow that I don't think you could have blood trailed him down off of there. I just happened to see him at the bottom and see him going to some pines. And that's where I picked the blood trail back up again. Um, but every situation is different, you know, but I've just seen so much carnage caused by, you know, bigger mechanical broadheads that I just don't see why I would want to shoot a fixed blade. Yeah. Well, that elk got hammered by a hammer. You know, there's people that don't trust them. It's just like I, I tell people that about dropway rest. I say the only people out here in target archery that don't shoot dropways is the guys that don't trust them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I helped build the Hamsky dropaway because I was unsatisfied with everything that was on the market. You know, it was built based on the failure points of everything that I had encountered. And same thing with this tuning data. It's it's all a compilation of of me ripping my hair out for 25 years to try to figure a process. Now I look at it and it's just work. I just know what I got to do and it's just work. It's a simple fix. You know, yep. some bows make it simpler than others. By far. So. 
Hey, I want to talk about one other subject, but I want to outro this section of the podcast real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll swing back to it. Okay. So I want to thank the living legend, Tim Gillingham, the hammer for everything he does for archery. I mean, the amount of testing and information you give to everybody is amazing. Whenever you're at an event, you're always more than happy to talk to people and share your knowledge. And I really want to appreciate it and appreciate you for everything you do for the sport of archery. And uh, if everybody wants to find out more about you, www.goldtip.com, the YouTube channel we talked about. Amazing. All you have to do is in the search bar, gold tip broadhead tuning, and it'll come right up. Tim, thank well, you. Thank you for everything sure. you do. Well, thank you. Hopefully before I get too old, I can figure out a way to do a complete YouTube channel and cover every aspect of archery. I, I think there's a, a lot that I have to teach and you know, it's about some of it's my methodologies and there's more than one way to skin a cat too. So, um, I appreciate it. And I, I do the videos when I get tired of answering questions, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I see. You know, it's always, not, it's always nice to have a, a video to point to and say, Hey, go watch that. Yeah. Because you're only, you're only going to retain so much of a conversation. Okay. And so it's important to have that to go back to, I do the same thing with like, you know, learning reloading and stuff for, and, and I, I, I watch lots of stuff and then I make notes and say, Hey, I need to go back whenever I decide to do this. I need to go back and watch that again and again and again and again, you know, it's an amazing so resource. It really is. That's how we, that's how we learn, you know, is, is being able to go back to a resource over and over again until we sort it out in our head. I remember when I was young, how many times I look at a stupid tuning chart to try to figure out the corrections to a left and right tear and so on and so forth. So having a video show you how to do it is awful nice. Yeah. It's important for me to teach people what they're doing rather than just how to do it. Okay. Yeah. You got you to gotta understand what you're actually doing. Okay. All right, wrapping up. That was our conversation with Tim the Hammer Gillingham, Gold Tip Arrows. Uh, if you guys want to check out more of the information that was talked about on this podcast episode, check out these cool broadheads that he was talking about, the Thorn Broadheads. I think it's thornbroadheads.com. Gold Tip Arrows, of course, Hamskia, Botech, all of his sponsors that he really loves and, and plays with. And like he talked about, he really only shoots the things that he has confidence in and he believes in and He's tested extensively. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I really love talking with him. Hopefully we'll have him back, talk about more stuff because Tim knows about freaking everything. So it's great. Great to talk to him. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Talk to you later. See you.